Welcome to the Documentary N1 from RTE in Ireland and to the 17th new episode of our 2020 season. Sarah MacDonald became godmother to a little boy during the violent conflict in East Timor in 1999. In September of 2019, she goes in search of the godson she last met 20 years ago in Timor-Leste coming of age. I'm Sarah MacDonald. In September last year, I went on a journey of remembrance. It was 20 years since I first travelled as a journalist to Timor-Leste. In the past, you might have heard it called East Timor. Back in 1999, during a very violent time of conflict here, a wonderful thing happened to me. I became a godmother to a little Timorese boy. That's me, meeting some Timorese children who are too young to remember the struggle their parents and grandparents had, trying to win independence from Indonesia. That's why I came here in 1999, to document firsthand a country coming to the end of a brutal 24-year occupation. I was coming to East Timor as a journalist, undercover to see what the situation was there was likely to be a vote coming up, a referendum on independence. I came here to get a sense of whether people would have a free vote or whether there was going to be a large-scale intimidation. That was the fear. Last time I travelled here, I couldn't say I was a journalist. The media were forbidden. Six journalists had been killed by Indonesian forces in East Timor as they reported on what turned out to be one of the worst genocides of the 20th century. My arrival in Timor-Leste in 2019 was so different to the experience I had when I came here 20 years ago. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Dili. Please revisit that until we have reached our parking position and fast and simple side. We've arrived at the airport in Dili. We're on Timorese soil. For me, it was quite emotional to see the Timorese flag. I'm returning for the first time since those eventful days to seek out my now 20-year-old godson, Natalizio, and find out how he is getting on. It's terrific to be here in independent Timor-Leste. Travelling with me is Documentary on One producer, Tim Desmond. East Timor was a Portuguese colony, roughly one half of Timor Island, lying off the north coast of Australia. It's mountainous, hot and dry for half the year, but it's surrounded by seas full of oil and gas. When the Portuguese left in 1975, Indonesia invaded, took control, and a 24-year fight for independence began. We're now just pulling up beside the Santa Cruz Cemetery. For years, this conflict was ignored by the rest of the world. East Timor was very far away, and the Indonesians banned all media access. It's now... The late afternoon, just heading up for half past six, and the sun is setting. It looks beautiful with the coconut palms in the background surrounding the whole graveyard, and the graves themselves are tended, you can see flowers. Eight years before I came here, there was a tragic turning point in this struggle. In November 1991, a memorial service was held for Sebastio Gomez. Gomez was a member of the Timorese resistance, 
who had been dragged from the nearby Motayel church and shot dead by the Indonesian army a few weeks earlier. The people processed through Dili up to this graveyard here, but the Indonesian military saw it as a gathering of the resistance. So they turned up too. And that's when all hell broke loose. Max Stahl, a British journalist filming undercover, videotaped the brutality of what was happening here. Inside the cemetery, a girl with a loudspeaker called people to pray over the grave of, of the young man who'd been murdered. And it was at that time, when I was inside the cemetery, uh, that I heard outside this barrage of, of fire. It was like a completely uninterrupted uh, fusillade. And, uh, they must have emptied their, their, their rifles. This is the chapel in Max Stahl's footage that you see some of the young people hiding inside trying to get away from the shooting. A number of them inside, but of course it probably just made them easier to target by being in here altogether. Everybody was running. Uh, people were falling. Those, some were falling because they were wounded. Some were falling because they were uh, clambering over the wounded trying to escape. It's a simple whitewashed building with a window that contains a large back cross and the prayer, Pai Nosso, pray for us. They killed over 200 young people. It was horrendous. The footage that Max Dahl recorded on that occasion shows brutal gunshot wounds, the dying and the wounded lying amongst the graves. Max Stahl's documentary footage was broadcast on ITV and was seen back in Ireland by a Dublin bus driver, a man named Tom Hyland. 1991 was the turning point. They managed to get the video film of that massacre out. That led to many, many groups being set up around the world, one which was the East Timor Ireland Solidarity Campaign. Most of us had never heard of Timor before, including myself. I had to look it up to see where it was. Sebastio Gomez. I've just asked this man, would he show us the grave of Sebastio Gomez? So we're just making our way between the graves. There's no paths, we're just tiny little areas between one grave and the next. By the end of the Indonesian occupation in 1999, Sebastio Gomez would be one of more than 200,000 dead out of a population of just 600,000. Ah, so this is it, Obrigado, Obrigado. The CIA called it one of the worst genocides of the 20th century. Wow, so it's it's different to the other graves because here you actually have, in addition to the grave itself on top, you have a a circular plinth on, on top of which is a bust of the young Sebastian Gomez. All I can make out is something about independence. After the massacre here, the world woke up to East Timor. Countries like Ireland began to help, but it would be eight more years before the people here would get to vote for independence. And I would pay my first visit. It appears to be a very well-visited grave, not only because there are plenty of flowers 
at the base, but people obviously touch it uh, when they approach it because the name of Sebastian Gomez is almost worn out. We're here outside the Motayel Church, which is on the waterfront in Dili. On my return journey, I really wanted to come to Motayel Church. Like Ireland, Timor-Leste is predominantly Roman Catholic. It was at this church that I became a godmother in 1999. It was a very moving moment for me, not only because I was becoming a godmother, but because I knew the resonance of the Motayel Church with the Santa Cruz Massacre. Standing here in 1999, holding Natalizio as an infant, was a beautiful experience in a frightening and dangerous situation. I felt honoured. I became his godmother after meeting Natalizio's cousin, a trainee priest, at a mass celebrated by East Timor's spiritual leader, Bishop Carlos Bello. The family asked me, because I think they wanted a godmother who was living outside East Timor, in case things got really bad after the referendum vote. We're here on a Sunday morning and one thing that I notice hasn't changed from 20 years ago is the number of people at mass. The place is absolutely packed to overflowing. An old friend, Dina Gondara, who I met when he was living in Ireland in the 1990s, is going to help me find my godson, Natalizio. You haven't changed at all. It's great to see you. Timor, I mean, you have seen, like, even Dili have changed a lot now. Initially, I did stay in touch after returning home. But when Dili was raised to the ground in autumn 1999, all communication was cut off and I couldn't contact his family. But the real reason I lost contact is a personal one. East Timor in 1999 was a malarial black spot, and so I, on medical advice, dosed myself with the anti-malarial drug mefloquine, more commonly known as larium. By the time I returned home, my own world was falling apart because of the horrendous side effects of larium. It took me years to get my life and health back on track. Now, 20 years on, I finally felt ready to return to Timor-Leste, and seek out Natalizio. So, all these buildings weren't here when you were here. Right. <laughs> okay, and there were way more cars on the road as well. That's right. As I drive around the capital, Dili, with Dino Gandara, I begin to spot some things I remembered from the last time I was here. I remember the black and white, um, the paintings, the road paintings, but the difference is that the taxis now are yellow, whereas when I came last time, they were blue. Yes. You know, <laughs> and the cars weren't in very good condition. Yes, well. yeah, yeah. What is this area of Delhi called? This Komoro, Komoro Bridge. And by the way, also Tom's house is just probably around 400 meters uh, to the east. Highland's house? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Not long after I was here in 1999, Tom Highland made his home in Delhi. Tom Highland was part of a global campaign to help East Timor achieve independence. And in 1999, the Indonesians agreed to a referendum. But when Tom arrived here in September, he found a city that had been burnt to the ground by pro-Indonesian militias, and most of the population had fled in search of safety. There was few people in the city, 
Food was very scarce. 80% to 90% of buildings, public and private, were destroyed right across the territory. Um, the place was basically flattened in an act, of, an act of horrible vengeance that will forever shame the Indonesian military. I remember seeing some people coming back um, and it was wonderful to see them and they knew that everything had to be built up again. But they came back and they rebuilt and they took control of their own destiny. Tom Highland was central to my decision to visit East Timor in March of 1999. The East Timor Solidarity Campaign, they wanted as many journalists to go into the country undercover to see what the situation was. There were concerns that people would be intimidated into voting to remain with Indonesia. On the streets, the military weren't in tanks. They, they were intimidating, but, you know, because I was a foreigner, I don't think they really hassled me. However, the militias were a different kettle of fish. The militias were groups of Timorese who were organised, funded and supported by the Indonesian military. And they were formed to intimidate these Timorese ahead of the referendum vote on independence. What I detected was a sense from the people that no matter what the intimidation, they were determined to vote to be free of Indonesian control. One of the things I felt about Dili in the first few days was the sense of fear in the place. I remember afterwards asking myself, was it just that I was very scared or very paranoid because we'd been told there are spies everywhere? Everybody's spying on somebody else. Don't give anything away. Don't compromise people. The consequences for them are horrendous. Looking out at the beautiful ocean from a seafront hotel beside the town of Lakisa, it's hard to imagine this tranquil oasis had known brutality and a terrible loss of life 20 years ago. I've come here today because one of the things that I remember most about my time in 1999, principally because it shocked me so much, was the massacre in the church in Lakisa. I wasn't actually in Lakisa when it happened. There was no media there. Indonesia afterwards said only five people died, but actually up to 200 people died. And one of the journalists who travelled in the immediate aftermath was Jonathan Head of the BBC. Within minutes of arriving in the little coastal town of Lakisa, it became obvious that something terrible had happened there. This weeping woman was the first person I met. People were shot in the church in the priest's house, she said. They were just shooting anyone they came across. After documenting what was going on in Lakisa, Jonathan Head returned to the Turismo Hotel in the Timorese capital, where I was staying with all the other journalists. I found the people of Lakisa living as refugees in their own town. Hundreds had sought shelter in the district chief's house. Among them were men, women and children bearing horrific wounds. Most were too stunned to speak. The house was awash with blood. Blood was also spattered all over the front of the church. 
By all accounts, this was a deliberate massacre by the Indonesian army and its Timorese militias in a town known for its sympathies with the pro-independence movement. With gunshots ringing out around Dili's suburbs, Jonathan Head told us what he had seen. By returning to Lakisa, I'm hoping to lay some ghosts to rest. I'd like to go to Mass this afternoon in the church in Lakisa as a kind of an act of honouring those who died 20 years ago. So we're within the compound of the church in Lakisa and there are some kids playing outside, so it sounds very cheerful and it's obviously a change place. The church sacristan in Lakisa, Mariano da Silva, tells me that he didn't witness the massacre in April 1999 because he had fled to the nearby forests. But members of his family told him how those who died had been killed outside the church by the militias and behind the priest's house. I would like to go in now and light a candle for the, in memory of those who lost their lives here so brutally. Although the Timorese have paid a huge price for their freedom, they remain loyal to their faith because the church was the only institution to speak up for them during the dark days of the Indonesian occupation. Just a few months after Sarah returned to Ireland, this happened. Polling stations have closed in East Timor in a referendum that could lead to the territory's independence from Indonesia. After 24 years of occupation, of violence, of humiliation, of exclusion, of discrimination, of rape, finally the people of East Timor go to the ballot to vote their conscience. On the 30th of August 1999, the people of East Timor overwhelmingly voted for independence. Indonesia had to give up control of the territory. But as they left, they destroyed everything they could. The country was a smouldering shell by the time an international force for East Timor was deployed by the United Nations to bring the violence to an end in September 1999. By then, another 1,400 Timorese were dead and over half the country's population, about 300,000 people, were displaced. Following a UN-administered transition period that included members of the Irish Army Ranger Wing, this tiny nation became the first new sovereign state of the 21st century, the Republic of Timor-Leste, in May 2002. East Timor has officially come into existence as the world's newest nation at a ceremony in the capital, Dili. After our political independence, our supreme objective will be the comprehensive development of all aspects of the life of our people. This will be our new philosophy as citizens, our new culture as a country, and our policy as East Timorese. Viva Timor-Leste! By this time, my godson, Natalizio, was just three and a half years old and I had lost complete touch with him. Larim had left me grappling with physical and mental health issues and trying to keep my own life on track. Travelling around in 2019 
It's easy to see the differences with 20 years ago. Everyone appears to have mobile phones. Young students are attending schools which have sprung up all over the country. And while public transport is lacking, there are more cars and mopeds on the roads. Progress, however faltering, has been made, according to Tom Harland. One of the great leap forwards is the country is completely electrified. There are new roads, but because it's such a mountainous territory, that has its own problems in building the roads. But they have made great strides, so there's a lot going into infrastructure. And they are masters of their own destiny now. Timor-Leste has been independent now for almost two decades. In the early years, it received a lot of overseas aid, including from Ireland. But the country has a lot of oil and gas offshore, and the government has begun spending the oil money coming in now, developing more oil and gas projects for the future. But that leaves very little money for everything else, like health, education and social services. Some young Timorese, like Berta Antonietta, feel there is too much focus on pouring money into petroleum infrastructure. The, the danger is we put all the eggs in one basket. I would say the a perfect scenario for Timorese living this time, we already have a safe state. That's already accomplished. Um, next to that is clean drinking water, uh, free health care that is not only free but high quality. People will be able to have nutritious food, the knowledge to eat nutritious food. That means they need to have good education. So proper investment on education, not in terms of money, but on teachers' training. So education, health, clean water, sanitation, that will fix many things. Now we have 30% of young people, age 17 below. Like Ireland in the past, tens of thousands of Timorese have gone abroad to find work and support their families back home. Remittances, money sent home, makes the second largest contribution to Timor-Leste's economy after oil. And much of it comes from the UK, including the meat processing plants of Dungannon in Northern Ireland, where Timorese community has settled. Berta and Tunietta feels it's not a long-term solution. It is very difficult for Timorese young people to find a job here. I, I, would not, I would not judge people individually if they would like to leave the country to find a job. However, we are a country of 1.3 million population. If we all move to, to find places to work in somewhere else, who's going to build this country? I've returned to Timor-Leste with some photos I'd taken in 1999. One of the photos shows my godson Natalizio at just three months old. That is how I last remember him. Another photo I took during those days of strife was of children at an orphanage run by the Silesian nuns. We've come from the capital Dili to this village of Venalale, a couple of hundred kilometres up into the mountains on really poor roads. I was here 20 years ago. I stayed here for about three days. Here, the children of the Timorese resistance, who had been orphaned, or whose parents were on the run, were looked after. There are a number of uh, children around. There's, it's a very large complex. There's a church in the background, school rooms, and over behind me is where the orphanage is. Just looking into the orphanage um, where the children sleep, it hasn't changed too much. It's still the bunks. You know, people might expect something 
more elaborate, but I guess if money is short, you provide the basics. I'm hoping to find someone who might remember the children in my photos. So just these children here, some of them were orphans, uh, the children of the resistance in 1999. Mm. Do you know what has happened to any of them? Mm. Oh, yeah. Now she is in clinic. Oh, she now in Ireland. This is now in Ireland. In Ireland? Ah, yeah. What's his name? Mateus. Mateus. It's good to know that many of the children of the resistance movement have grown up safely and made their way in the world. But the need for the orphanage remains. Who are the children that come to stay in the orphanage today? I mean, in the past, they were the children of the fighters, independence fighters. Now it's especially for those orphans and separated family, divorced like that, abandoned. Some is very poor. And do you get any support from the Timor-Leste government? No. Travelling back from Venalale to Dili, it seemed to me that some of the natural beauty of the landscape had been eroded. There was less forest than I remembered. Chinese companies were busy overseeing road building, and this was covering everything in a heavy coat of dust. As well as using the oil money, the government has borrowed from the Chinese to develop infrastructure. But a condition of the loans is that the work is done by Chinese companies. For one Australian academic, environmental degradation was the most obvious change she noticed when she returned to Timor-Leste. My name's Helen Hill, uh, from Melbourne, Australia. I first came to Portuguese Timor in 1975 to collect some data for my master's thesis. The big thing that that shocked me as I flew into Timor in, in 2000 not having been there since 1975, was to see all the deforestation that had taken place. Because when I was here in 1975, the whole country was practically covered with rainforest. Straight after independence, they did actually bring in some laws uh, supposedly preventing further deforestation. But the reality is that the majority of people are still cooking over open fires and deforestation still continues. With problems as basic as this, I wondered about the future for my godson Natalizio. Thanks to Dino's contacts, we've tracked down a telephone number for him. Hello. Hello, good morning. Natalizio, how are you? My name is Sara, Irlandia. I'm very happy that I'm finally going to be able to meet Natalizio again after 20 years. He's living in Dili and I've made arrangements to meet him at his family home. In the meantime, I have some more questions from my friend Dino. Dino Gandara was involved in the underground Timorese resistance as a student, but when it became too unsafe for him, he sought sanctuary in Portugal and then came to Ireland in the 1990s to help Tom Hyland with the East Timor Solidarity Campaign. Dino's family paid a very high price for their involvement in the resistance. 
My father killed in 1981, 7th of September 1981, with a lot of uh, Timorese at the time, and with his uh, two brothers and one cousin as well. Your father was a member of the resistance? Yes, yeah. Mm. And what age were you, do you know, when you lost I was uh, about five. I was one and a half years when Indonesia invaded. And then we went to the jungle, and then we surrendered to Indonesia in 1977-78. But because my, my father uh, was one of the uh, resistance leaders as well, so he kept in the jungle until he killed in 1981. One of the photos I have with me from my time in East Timor 20 years ago shows five members of the Timorese resistance whom I met at a secret safe house. I'm hoping Dino can shed some light on who they are. Uh, uh, his brother is this one. Mm -hmm. uh, and this one is uh, Nunes. He's uh, now colonel. He's a colonel. He's a colonel now, so he's taking care of the biggest uh, battalion now in, in Timor. Yeah. One, two, three, three four, four men, yeah. one woman. Yeah. And she was a resistance fighter as she's, well. Yeah, she's, yeah. She was, she looks very vulnerable in yes. that. But at the yeah. end of the meeting, she actually gave mm. me, she okay. had a very small bracelet. She took yeah. it off and she gave it to me. I still have it okay. in my house. I thought it was such I a will, I, will, I will tell you. <laughs> Who That's, is this? Yeah. It's my sister, yeah. That's your sister? Yeah. I didn't realise it. <laughs> I'm standing beside her in that. Yes, yeah. She could have been 27 arrested. or 28, she could yeah. have, or, Anything no, no. could have happened. Killed. Killed. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Wow. Dino suggested that we meet one of the former resistance fighters, who is now Colonel Armindo Nunes, and chat to him about that secret meeting at the safe house in 1999. Armed with the photograph, we travelled to the army barracks at Metanaro, home of Timor Leste's 1st Battalion. So these are the photos? Okay. Hello. Will you ask him, does he by any chance remember that meeting in 1999? Yeah, he said it, yeah. He knows. He knows everyone. Why were they in your house and not in the mountains? The, they were there for a meeting? Yeah, for the meeting, yeah. Uh, purpose was like for a referendum. That's why for the security. Oh, okay. Yeah, security so meeting. they were meeting about the referendum yes, on the 30th yeah. of August. Yeah. Does he look back and mm. feel very proud of his past? It's a reality. <coughs> uh, it's life and it's like as a soldier, you know, you have to face anything okay. during that time. And uh, Colonel Nunes, mm. uh, did he lose any family members? Yes, yeah. It's maybe better not to... Ask. Yeah, yeah. Okay. but he has, yeah. yeah. They, they lose almost everyone. So, like, for example, like uh, uh, Emilia, she lost the whole family, only herself. That was wonderful. Thank you, Dino. That was an incredible experience um, to see somebody who is so elevated within the army here in a new country and for him to make time for us. One thing that Dino referred to, I, I wanted to ask him, had he lost any family members? But you suggested that it wasn't a good thing to ask him because he'd lost so many family members. He lost probably around 12 or 14 of them. He lost his parents and brothers oh, yeah, and yeah. sisters? Yes, all his family, yeah. I think he was about 10 or 11 years old when they went to the jungle. Okay. 
Meeting Colonel Nunes had answered all the questions I had about what had happened to the five resistance fighters I'd met in 1999. I had another day to wait before meeting my godson Natalizio. So I went to visit a doctor I hadn't seen in 20 years. We're here at the Barrow Pite Clinic in Dilly and we're about to meet Dr. Dan Murphy, who I met in 1999. This 55-bed facility provides free health care to the Timorese, treating tuberculosis, HIV, yellow fever and many other diseases. It also delivers up to 50 babies a month. I'm looking forward to meeting Dr. Dan because he was one of the people I met in 1999 and he was seen as very much a figure who was on the side of the Timorese. So I hope he remembers me. I'm just noticing here a sign outside the Barrow Pite Clinic. It says Irish Aid supports Barrow Pite Clinic, May 2008. So Irish Aid obviously gave support to Dr. Dan. Dr. Dan, oh, hello. how are you? I'm not sure if hello. you remember me, but you haven't changed at all. Well, I don't know if I kind of do, yes. but a lot of people come through. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I have been here since 1998 in East Timor. This clinic has been open since 1999. 1.2 million patients seen one by one, 50 inpatient beds, 20,000 admissions, 10,000 deliveries. This clinic sees more tuberculosis than any clinic I know of on earth. For sure in Asia, in Southeast Asia and in Asia. We've now grown to the point where we're so big, we employ 100 people. Our budget is 50,000 a month. This clinic has now diagnosed 4,000 cases of TB during this time. That's a huge number of TB cases. Dr. Dan explained some of the problems with healthcare in Timor-Leste. Despite being free of Indonesia for 20 years, we still haven't totally developed healthcare, and certain crucial things are still not available. For instance, pathology. There is no pathology. That means you don't really know what's wrong with someone. You have to just use a clinical impression because laboratory cannot take like a biopsy and fix it and look at it and see what exactly is this. It's not a high level of medical care. This is the, the maternity. Volunteer nurse Marion Brand is showing us around. You were saying that there might be up to 10 women a week, is it, giving birth here? I know one time there was 10 in one day. Yeah, 10 or maybe 20. Sometimes we put two babies in one bed. Despite this clinic's record and Timor-Leste's oil money, government cutbacks meant that during our visit to the clinic, there were no patients. Usually, the place is buzzing. Usually, Dan's doing the ward rounds and going around with the doctors and the nurses and seeing the patients, checking on their care and their, their charts. But we're trying to pay the going rate for wages for nurses and, you know, so people can have a little self-respect, a little dignity, and we can't keep up. So we are in a financial crisis, and we're at the point now where we don't know almost from day to day what we're going to be able to do because we don't have the money to pay anyone. After months working without wages, the staff had stayed away and the clinic was shut. The staff have been working for, what is it, five months with no pay? Yeah, 
Yeah. And a few months ago, we had a similar crisis where they were shutting it down and sending patients home. We had patients refusing to go home. Last week, the staff decided they weren't going to volunteer anymore. It's, it's not like there's no money. They've got these oil funds, and but a lot of it goes into huge mega projects where you're putting, hoping that they're going to get oil refineries into the southern part of the island, and it just points out once more, healthcare is a privilege for those with resources. It is not a fundamental right for anyone, which it should be. Sadly, Dr. Dan passed away in April of this year. The Biro Pite Clinic will find it even harder to keep going without his leadership and his dedication to delivering health to the people of Timor-Leste, particularly if the state continues to focus so much on oil and gas. Timor-Leste is today a country at peace, but with huge socio-economic problems. But my reason for coming here was to reunite with my godson and his family. He is living in Dili, and I've made arrangements to meet at his family home. I can't quite believe this is going to happen. I'm finally going to meet Natalizio again after 20 years. We're travelling through downtown Dili. I'm a little bit nervous about the, the meeting. He's a young man. He has all his hopes and ambitions ahead of him. I was his godmother. I haven't seen him. I feel a certain sense of guilt around that. One of the things I'm hoping to see is if Natalizio's actual baptismal certificate has survived. And if it has, does it make any reference to me as his godmother? OK, so we're just going up behind the Bishop's Palace in Dili and there's a whole housing area. The road isn't very good quality. As we approach the house, Sarah suddenly recognises a face from 20 years ago. That's Natalizio's father, yeah, Martino, yeah, wow. That's him. He hasn't really changed that much. He's got older. <laughs> oh, so good to see you. You look the same. <laughs> I knew you straight away. I have photos. Yeah, you look the same. Sarah is talking to Natalizio's father. His mother, Julia, comes out. And then... Natalizio appears at the door. Natalizio! Natalizio! Well done! He's a tall, strong young man with jet black hair and warm brown eyes. What a lovely, lovely young man. I'm so proud. Thank you. That's absolutely... Thank you. In typical Timorese fashion, he shows deference to his elders. Natalizio, you speak a little bit of English? He's shy. No. <laughs> you can't believe that the last time I saw you, you were like a little baby. So, so tiny, you know? We're yeah. sipping lemonade on the veranda of the modest family home, surrounded by pink walls and potted flowers. Are you <laughs> studying or working now, Natalie? Next year, we will continue to study. Good man. Yes. Good. Yeah. OK, let me, let me just get some of these photos of your... <laughs> As we sit chatting, I took out the photographs from 20 years ago. Here's your dad. See your dad there? Oh, yeah. Natalizio. Natalizio. Look at you. Look, gorgeous little baby. 
Natalizio's parents, Martino and Julia, tell me about the destruction of Dili in 1999 by the militias. Martino also reveals that after the baptism, he was asked a lot of questions about why I, a foreigner, had been chosen to be the godmother and why they had invited me into their home. So this is the actual baptism yeah, yeah, search. Yeah. Natalicio <laughs> Emmanuel de Jesus Suarez. Oh, here we are. <laughs> the, so the godfather was Paolo de Castrofratus <laughs> and the madrina, the mother, godmother, was me, Sarah MacDonald. That's wonderful. They took a big risk by being so hospitable and kind to me. I could have brought them trouble from the Indonesians. An Irish godmother and her Timorese godson have finally reconnected, 20 years after their first meeting. Okay, thank you. Talk to you soon, okay? Thank God we've made the contact now and if Natalizio comes to Ireland, I'll be looking after him. I'll take up my responsibility as a godmother. Hopefully we can continue to share something into the future. I'm heading out to the airport now and my time in Timor-Leste is over. Thinking back over my stay, I had a sense that the future of this young country is bright, but fragile. It's, it's poignant for me because I would like to spend more time here to discover more about this society. So many things are the same as they were in 1999. So many things have changed. So many new challenges have developed. On balance for myself, I feel very hopeful for Timor-Leste, but I don't think it's going to be plain sailing for them. I think it's going to be one step forward, two steps back. I still find it shocking to see some of the circumstances in which people are living. But because of what happened in 1999, the world now knows about Timor-Leste and it's an example to everybody else of how a country with very little can actually make a future for itself. You've been listening to Timor-Leste, Coming of Age, from the Documentary on One, narrated and produced by Sarah MacDonald and Tim Desmond. Until next time, thanks for listening.